0: Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, energized life that totally rocks. You're listening to Straight Talking Natural Health, a no BS podcast for busy women who want to ditch the fatigue, find balance and feel great with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Today's guest is quite simply one of the warmest, most approachable, most intelligent and well-researched practitioners in our industry. She's a bit of a legend when it comes to skin issues and some of you may know her from her social media where she is known as That Naturopath. But her interest and her zone of genius took a pivot in recent years when she became very sick due to exposure to mould and water damage in her home. So much so that she had a very serious case of mold illness and SIRS, also known as chronic inflammatory response syndrome. So she did what any good naturopath does. She sought out further studies so that she could help others with the same issue because that's what we do. (laughs) She threw herself into the world of building biology and is now a qualified mold testing technician. She doesn't do things by halves mold illness is a huge issue in Australia. I see so much of it in practice at the moment and it's often mistakenly diagnosed as adrenal fatigue or chronic fatigue. So I've got this wonderful human on the show today to do a deep dive. So without further ado, please welcome to the show the super lovely Amy Skilton. Oh, Jules! <laughs>
1: wow, I'm glad
0: no one can see my face because I am blushing right Aww.
1: now.
0: <laughs> Sweet introduction, and thank you so much for inviting me on. Oh, I'm so excited about this today because this is a really big, passionate thing of mine. Because like I've had exposure to mold myself, I see this all the time in practice, uh, and and because I I talk to people a lot about adrenal fatigue, I often get people who come to me and they go, "Oh, I think I've got adrenal fatigue," and And once we've had a consultation, we're like, it's mold illness. Mm. So tell us a little bit bit about your experience with mold illness, straight up. Uh, Because when did this happen, and how did it all unfold for you? So it was
1: 2017, where I went from being a healthy woman who really didn't have any health complaints, even though I was 37 at that time. to being completely physically and neurologically debilitated to the point where I couldn't string a sentence together. There was a point where I didn't know my own name. I couldn't figure out how to even put clothes on to leave the house. And there are months of my life where I can't remember anything. And in that time, you know, I put on somewhere between 10, 15 kilos Everything in my body that could go wrong did go wrong. And it was a hell of a shock, to be honest, as someone who, excuse me, has always had great health and also knowing what to do. If something popped up, as you do, we're very lucky um, to be in a profession that understands the body so intimately and has so many incredible tools to bring it back into balance. And what was really tricky about the experience was it crept up slowly and I think that's what makes it so hard to spot. And I suppose chronic conditions generally it can be quite tricky to find the original cause because unlike an infection or an injury where there's an immediate event and things you know clearly were one way prior and one way after, this was something that really my health unraveled over a period of about five months. So if I go back to the beginning of it all, it was November 2016 where I had moved apartments. I moved into a beautiful apartment in Manly, which is on the northern beaches of Sydney, Australia. And the apartment had been recently renovated. So it had a beautiful bathroom, a beautiful kitchen, um, lovely northeast sunny aspect, walking distance to the beach, you know, ticking all the right boxes. And I had actually taken a year off work to dive into some personal projects and I had refinanced my investment property in order to be able to afford to not earn a dollar that year, not thinking for a second that that was actually what was about to unfold. And unbeknownst to me, the bathroom that had been just recently renovated had been done poorly. Something went wrong with the drainage or the waterproofing membrane. I never quite got to the bottom of what it was because trying not to die was a higher priority at the time and also escape with our belongings and get compensation and find somewhere new to live. But ultimately what was happening was every time my partner and I were showering, the water from the shower was not only going down the drain, but was spreading underneath the carpet throughout the apartment.
0: Oh my God. Mm. Um,
1: yes. So, and that's a lot of water. If you look at what an average shower, um, uses, I think it was something like 45 to 65 liters of water. That's two people, you know, summertime we may have been down at the beach so may have showered at the end of the day as well. It's a lot of water. Um, but because we had good ventilation, sunlight, always had the doors and windows open. We never, We never saw the water and there was only one day when I said to my partner, James, I feel like the carpet's a bit wet underfoot, but it was over by where the balcony was and Sydney can be humid and we're near the sea spray and I thought it was just like surface moisture. And it wasn't until um, things started falling apart that I really started to question um, what was going on and how it began. I didn't notice for the first couple of months because I was effectively on holiday. <clears throat> when all you're doing is eating, sleeping, lying on the beach and reading a book, you don't really notice. <laughs> your energy's not good. Your cognition isn't good because you're not studying and you're not really using your brain. And I was living in you know, swimsuits and singlets and shorts. I didn't know that I wasn't able to fit into any of my normal clothes at that point. But what happened was about three months later, I'd made the um, plan to begin work on my projects February 1st. And I sat down at my desk, this is 2017 now, and tried to do a day of work. And I was exhausted. And just like what you have found with your clients, I was like, gosh, I've got my adrenal fatigue is really bad. And this is sort of, a perspective I'd had because 2016 was a really huge year for me. I'd actually spoken at two overseas conferences towards the end of the year. I had delivered this incredible presentation nationally around the country, um, along with researching and writing 25 other seminars in a three-month period. I had 30 presentations, all that I had to research, write myself, travel overseas, and you know, the gut-skin axis had almost 1200 references. So I really blew myself up. So February one, I was exhausted and I thought, oh, okay, I just haven't had enough rest. And oh dear, that's really bad that, you know, two, three months holiday wasn't enough to recover from (laughs) 2016. So I thought, okay, that's all. I will, I've got a whole year. In fact, I had 15 months. So I thought, right, I'll move it back to March first. Another four weeks of rest is fine. But I need to get back into a bit more of an exercise routine, um, and so I started working out on a re- well, I tried to start working out on a regular basis, and whenever I did a i suppose what you 'd call just a kind of normal workout i wasn 't doing anything crazy i 'm no Olympic athlete um, i 'd have to go back to bed for four hours, and it was just extraordinary how bad I felt. Then I started um, experiencing insomnia, which of course then I would put my tiredness down to the fact that I just hadn't slept well, and then I had a styling session with a girlfriend late feb, where I realized I couldn 't fit into any of my clothes, and again, I just wrote that off as having a good holiday break and not paying <laughs> attention you know to what I was eating. But, you know, March and April, um, things really deteriorated because in that, um, the you know, the whole process of um, trying on clothes and I actually disturbed all the mold spores. So at that point, all of my symptoms began to accelerate. So the allergy symptoms kicked in. So a lot of people think they have hay fever or they have allergies to X. But if you have got these symptoms that are, outside the season, I'm telling you, there's an environmental issue likely to be mold. And certainly for me, I had to start taking antihistamines and even they didn't really help because that's how severe the mold was. Now, I do want to say at this point, there was no visible mold anywhere in the house. And no smell, right? And no smell. Um, It wasn't until April where the weather started to cool down and we started... um, closing up the house a little more often, that we would come home and it was barely perceptible, barely perceptible, but it was like a tiny bit of a musty smell. And I just want to say before I sort of carry on about the symptoms, a home shouldn't have a smell. Rooms shouldn't have a smell. Wardrobes shouldn't have a smell. There should be nothing but fresh, empty, clean air. So anytime there's an odour of any description there is some kind of microbial activity happening. So I now understand that to be a red flag. But yeah, at this point I started losing stuff. I couldn't find my keys. Then I'd find my keys and I couldn't find my phone that I just had in my hand. I would park you know, my vehicle on the street and leave the keys in the ignition or I'd park it somewhere and I wouldn't remember where I parked it. And things just got worse and worse and worse. And to be honest, it was sheer luck that I put two and two together. Two things happened that allowed me to see what was really going on. Number one, when we first moved into that apartment, the strata reached out to get a plumber through. They said, oh, there's a leak into the garage from the floor above, which was our floor. We think it's coming from your place. Do you mind if we send someone in to have a look? Sure. That was pre-Christmas never heard anything, which is why I thought it must be fine. And then a few months later, like in April, May, um, a friend of mine on Instagram also shared about a leak that they'd had and mentioned mold and the penny just dropped. And then when I started investigating, I found out that yes, indeed, the leak was coming from our property and that the owner was trying to pretend it was a building defect to make the strata pay for it and the strata were trying to get the owner to pay for it. meanwhile, they all left us in an apartment that was actively leaking for five months. so oh my god you can imagine the rage and the distress, um, but at that point you know I was going to sleep at night and my lungs were burning. We had to move the bed into the lounge. Um, so I could breathe. But what I didn't know was the whole mattress was just seething with mold at that point. Um, And so I was lying down on this mattress and and breathing in um, mold at night. So I could actually feel all of the branches of my airways. And yeah, it was so that was... My first experience of a toxic mold exposure like that, and it's like when you've been damaged or poisoned by anything, your body then becomes a highly sensitive instrument to detecting it in the environment. Now, I have got what is dubbed the mold gene, um, which is really a series of haplotypes that make you more vulnerable to this, but. I have actually lived in water damaged properties growing up and it now explains a lot of the weird symptoms I had as a kid on and off, like muscle cramps, like uh, bleeding noses, like the nightmares I was having, um, the poor circulation, the pins and needles I was having. And now my body lets me know immediately if I'm in a water damaged environment. But I guess the reason we're talking about this is because so many people are not aware of the health problems mold can cause. And there's many, many other symptoms that I haven't mentioned, some of which I didn't get. And a lot of people are not cognizant of that if there's a leak in their home, they need to get it dry within 48 hours or cut the building materials out. And the third thing I want to say is outside of a water leak, you can still end up with water damage and mold if you're not controlling the humidity in your home. That's also not something that we're taught either. And so there's probably some key takeaways around that, that I'd love to make sure we cover before the end of our conversation, because this just doesn't have to happen um, to people. There are occasions, well, many occasions where leaks are not immediately obvious and That's a real tragedy because that can really impact the people who live inside, particularly children, um, and of course can be quite expensive to fix or um, at least very invasive, um, assuming you've got insurance to cover it. But a lot of these things are also quite preventable, and you can minimize the impact on you and everyone else living in the home by acting quickly and knowing what to look for and what to monitor
0: as well. Okay, so let's backtrack a little bit first and talk about what are some of the signs and symptoms of mold illness. So you've, you've already mentioned some of your own experiences, but yes. what else do people need to look out for?
1: So probably the first signs um, there's a problem in the home, and this can happen for anyone, not just someone with my particular genetic makeup. Are those chronic allergy type symptoms? So, asthma, asthma that's getting worse, asthma that's getting more frequent, asthma that's needing more and more medication to care for it. Same goes with eczema. I never had eczema growing up as a kid. But I tell you what, if I pick up a moldy box or I enter into a moldy um, property, I start to get eczema in the creases of my elbows and funny little rashes. Um, any kind of allergy symptoms, so watery eyes, runny nose, sneezing, itchy throat, um, taking antihistamines all the time. But some of the other more common presentations, particularly those ones that are um, misdiagnosed a lot, are like you mentioned, adrenal fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, so the inflammation that gets caused in someone's body when you're exposed to toxins, and that's any toxin, but the toxins mold produce uh, very, very poisonous, you end up in a lot of pain. So it can cause arthritis, joint pain, swelling, lymphedema. I know for me, I, you know, I couldn't stay in bed for very long because my hips would hurt. The weight of my body on my joints was very painful. Um, Headaches, particularly migraines, um, gastrointestinal issues. So here's just a little interesting thing to keep in mind. Um, IBS, any kind of gut problems, food intolerances, and especially SIBO and SIFO, um, which are particular types of dysbiosis in the gut that can cause very severe symptoms. There's lots of things that can cause gut problems, right? We know there's chemicals in the food, stress, people don't chew properly. Um, It's a long list. However, (laughs) in in the environment, not just in the homes, but especially in the homes, you have a microbiome in your home, just like you do on your skin, just like you do in your gut. And any time you change the environment, just like if you change your diet, the microbiome, shifts now when you add water to your home as in moisture high humidity which some climates are prone to or there's a leak or you haven't just haven't managed water very well in your home you know steam from cooking or drying clothes inside things like that every little microbe in the home starts to compete for the water and the food the food being building materials and dust and dead skin cells And so you've got bacteria proliferating in your carpet and on your walls and your flooring and on your blinds and in your curtains, and you've got viruses and you've got fungi and you've got all kinds of microorganisms. Now they all want to be the dominant species. And so one of the ways in which mold tries to be the boss is it produces toxins that kill bacteria. And probably the most famous one most people would know is penicillin. Penicillin is a mycotoxin. It's an antibiotic because mold produces toxins to kill bacteria. And so when you've got mold growing in your home, these mycotoxins can have all kinds of effects in the body, but many of them are antibiotics, which means they start to damage your own microflora on your skin and in your gut. So we start to see chronic skin problems and chronic gastrointestinal problems. Um, particularly, interestingly, loss of bowel continence. Um, so anyone with IBS where they are prone to losing control of their bowels, for me is a really big red flag as there might be mold in the home, but I would always want to rule that out. But when you sort of get more into the SIRS symptoms or chronic inflammatory response syndrome, these tend to occur in roughly a third of the population, and. What makes this so tricky is, let's say there's a household of, let's let's just sort of take an example of a nuclear family, mum, dad, two kids. Not everyone, statistically speaking, is likely to have the mold gene, which means if one of the parents gets really sick and maybe the kids are fine or maybe it's one child and one parent and the other two are fine. It can be very hard to accept that it's the home making them sick when not everyone is being affected in the same way. But in those of us that have this genetic makeup, we can't clear the toxins mold produce the way other people can, which means that the part of our immune system that's not specific, they like Wild West Cowboys, continues to function and produce inflammation that then causes all of this other damage down the line. So it damages parts of the brain. You can literally measure this on a very special type of MRI. Some parts shrink, which is where we have memory-impacted uh, we can also see some expand um, where we see behavioral problems, so um, depression and anxiety. And certainly the younger the human being is, the more we can see that manifest as behavioral disorders, things like ADD or acting out or night terrors, bed, bedwetting and older children or, you know, a new incidence of that. Um, we see nervous system damage. So I had uh, tremors. Um, We start to see damage to um, parts of the brain that um, regulate biological functions. So one of the things that happens is you start to urinate more. It looks a bit like diabetes except it's not and you start losing um, a lot more electrolytes through the urine which then causes you to get muscle cramps really frequently and to shock yourself a lot when you touch things with a buildup of static. So we see a lot of different symptoms that seem really unrelated. Like if you went to your doctor and said, look, my eyes are watering, my memory's going, I'm getting muscle cramps, I keep shocking myself and my pets, um, I am feeling dizzy all the time and nauseous and I've got this metallic taste in my mouth and I've got this and I've got that. That's 35 symptoms of SIRS. First of all, if they don't think you're a hypochondriac and refer you to a psychiatrist, (laughs) they're going to send you to an endocrinologist to look at this and a gastroenterologist to look at your gut and they're going to send you to a rheumatologist for the joint pain and then they're going to send you to a, you know, this and a that.
0: Neurologist. I've had clients who've been sent to a neurologist and Mm then the neurologist says you're fine. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't know what to look for.
1: And I personally, I actually just had a very traumatizing experience with a GP, um, which I want to share because I feel like this is quite a common experience for people, especially if they're being impacted by a hidden environmental hazard. Most health practitioners, especially those that come up from an allopathic background, are not taught environmental medicine. And I have to say, even though I trained at an incredible college, there's a huge blind spot there too, which is why I'm studying what I'm studying now. I went to this doctor and I, and I did that because on legal advice, because the plan was to sue the owner because they actually knew about the leak and uh, ultimately allowed this whole experience to unfold. And, you know, I wrote down a list of my symptoms in order to be efficient. They don't have a lot of time and also to be really complete. And I got sort of 12 symptoms down and the look on her face still makes me feel sick today. She just looked at me like I was a looney tune. And she was not only visually (laughs) expressing her disdain for me, Mm. she also cut me off and said, what else have you got? Is that it? Is there any more? It was so goddamn rude. I can't even tell you. And she ran all of the basic biochem that they would, which is of course the first step. But <laughs> they if you don't know what to test for, you won't find it. So... She she took great pleasure, I also might add, at the follow-up appointment telling me everything was perfect and I was perfectly healthy. Mm, I mean, talk, talk about gaslighting. On what planet does another human deny someone's account of their experience? But anyway, what was interesting about that was my whole body was on fire. I could feel my nerves burning at night when I went to sleep. And it was, I actually started having anxiety around going to bed because it's in those quiet, dark moments that you can feel what your body is telling you much more loudly than any other time. And and she tested ESR and CRP, which are kind of the standard GP tests for inflammation, but there's over 180 different inflammatory markers um, to look for. And certain ones are triggered by certain things. And those two were perfect. So on that, Very limited basis, she said, "You're fine. You're not inflamed." But when the correct markers were tested for, I was off the charts. And so, and for me, the reason I'm sharing this is I'm a health professional. I've been in this um, arena for almost twenty years. I feel very empowered around my own health. Obviously, feel. Um, fairly educated. And I have an incredible network of other naturopaths and health professionals I can lean on and turn to and see. Um, And I felt absolutely terrified for my life. I felt heartbroken at the experience I had. I was disgusted with the attitude Um, that I was on the receiving end of. And it really shook my faith in humankind and medicine. And I thought, if this is my experience and I have all the tools in the world, how does it feel to be a non-medical professional at the mercy of arrogant, ignorant, gaslighting professionals? Um, So yeah, there's a laundry list of symptoms and, and it can just be so hard because they're so, they appear to be so separate from each other. And sometimes you can think, am I crazy? <laughs> like, am I real? Is this really happening to me? This is wild. And But you just have to know that you know your body best and trust yourself and keep going until you find someone who has the experience and the insight to at least hear your story and go looking. You can forgive someone not knowing something, but I think it's unforgivable for someone refusing to look, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. And what you're saying is so true for so many of my clients as well, where we'll get the test results back and I'll actually show them the results and say, look, this is what we found. We have found something. And it's interesting because you would think that when someone gets that sort of news, they would be upset, but they're just relieved. They're like, mm. and they, they often say to me, "So I'm not crazy then? Is this the proof that I'm not crazy? Can yeah. I go back to my mom or my husband or my, you know, whoever it is in my family who doesn't believe me? And can I show them this? And and how do I explain to them that I'm not crazy? Because yeah. it's just. They've had so many people tell them that it's fine and that it's in their head, and they've been offered a myriad of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. And yeah, it, it's it's so disempowering. And I, you know, I, I feel like you only got to the bottom of this because of the training that you had and the profession that you're in and the network that you of people that you have around you. Yep. Uh, it's it's so much more difficult for someone who doesn't have that that medical or, or naturopathic training behind them.
1: Totally. If that, if I didn't know what I know and who I know and where to go, I would have likely been diagnosed with early onset dementia and institutionalized. Holy no crap! Question. Yeah, no question. I mean, we probably wouldn't have continued living there anyway. Um, but you know, I've inspected hundreds of properties in Sydney and I found 98.3% of the water damage, which means for most people they're jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. And the reason they're chronically ill is because they are chronically being made ill by the environment they're in. And it's not as simple as just simply leaving the home because water damage is so frequent. And that's why I ended up training as a mold testing technician. And can I tell you a funny story? Mm. I was very sick when I did that training I was still cognitively speaking all over the shop. So my memory, my concentration was terrible. And I was doing that training because it's not um, it's not feasible to hire a building biologist to check a home before you move in if it's a rental. And, you know, as I said, I, ins- I inspected 300 and 295 of them were visibly water damaged and it would have cost somewhere between 500 and 750 a check. So it just was never going to happen. So I thought, right, I'm going to invest, I think it was 1500, 1600 to become a mold testing technician, not because I ever wanted to go and assess people's properties, but I wanted to keep myself safe, but I was so sick. And I had to I had to get an extension on the assignment because it was just taking me so long, I was so exhausted, but when I did the 4 day in person training, I sat next to the founder of the college, who's an incredible woman, Nicole Balsma. And she, similarly she
0: was still one my lecturers at college. She's amazing. Yeah, she's she been on this podcast. <laughs> she's absolutely brilliant. She's, an abs- she's one of my heroes.
1: And similarly, she went through you know, health challenges that led her to building biology. And she started the college, Australian College of Environmental Studies and brought building biology to Australia. I was sitting next to her in class and when I was that adult- I didn't even know what page we were supposed to be on as as the the lecturer was taking us through it. And I felt like such an idiot. I felt so stupid. I'm sitting right next to this person that I admire and I'm a student of hers and I'm trying to get through this course and I can't even figure out what page we're on and where I'm supposed to be looking on the page. And I don't even know by what grace I managed to get through that course, but it then enabled me to finally find a a safe home. It took four months and 300 properties. And then um, once I got there within six weeks, I was 85% better on a naturopathic protocol, of course, but um, the protocol was just keeping my head above water while I was still in in a bad environment. So I think, you know, some people just think that their body is broken there's something defective in their genes or it runs in the family but perhaps what runs in your family is an environmental sensitivity that you're unaware of and it's not till that you that's brought to your awareness and you know what to look for and how to avoid it that things can really change so i feel so so grateful because if i if that hadn't happened i absolutely would have gotten more and more overweight, more and more exhausted. I wouldn't have got, been able to get out of bed and I would have gotten to a point where I couldn't communicate anymore or do anything. And I'm, I hate to say this, but a lot of hospitals and other, you know, um, nursing homes and things are also, their environment is very poisonous. And so there isn't recovery for a lot of people in those places either because they are underfunded and, not maintained properly. And again, most people don't know what to look for.
0: That's actually, that just sparked something that I remembered as well, that uh, if your home is okay, but you've got some of these symptoms, check your workplace. I had a client who had all of this sort of stuff going on Mm. and it turned out she was spending eight or nine hours at work every day and there was a water leak pretty much above her desk. Uh, wow. So there's a big patch of, of water in the ceiling and wow. once we got her out of there, all the naturopathic treatments started to really kick in. But we were, we were trying all kinds of things and she even moved house to a different house and she was still sick and we're like, what, what have we missed? What have we missed? And it was out of work. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, it, it is quite common. Again, buildings are not maintained that well. Humidity isn't controlled for um, mm-hmm. building managers, a bit like residential rental properties, to be honest, commercial rentals. They want to put as little money in as possible and collect as much rent as possible. And so things like repairs are often not done Correctly, um, and then the remediation of the leak is almost not even a consideration. And if it is done, it's not done properly. And we do we spend a lot of time at work, and that is another probably the second most significant exposure. I do find public transport can be quite bad. Um, I've been on a train a couple of times between Gold Coast and Brisbane, horribly mouldy, and in,
0: you know, oh less God. than an
1: yeah less than an hour, and felt very unwell. had to go to bed
0: after that. Um, Hotel rooms. I've had it in hotel rooms as well.
1: Hotels are the absolute worst. So pre-COVID, I would fly around the country and sometimes overseas presenting, which would mean staying in hotels. Here's a really interesting um, anecdote for you. Before I got sick with mold illness, Whenever I would travel, I, was, I would always travel with a bit of vitamin C, zinc, an antimicrobial herbal throat spray or some lozenges because without fail, I would wake up the next morning with a sore throat. And I think like most people, I always put it down to the air in the cabin of the aeroplane. And I always just kind of wrote it off as that and kind of par for the course. Obviously, as a presenter, when I'm speaking, I can't afford to have my throat and voice affected. So I always traveled prepared. Anyway, post mold illness, and I realized that most hotels are moldy, I began and it was a very long and unfortunately hands-on process of identifying which hotels are moldy, but I can tell you now, I've got five hotels across Australia that I can stay in that don't make me sick. And I do not get a sore throat when I travel ever. It was the mold in the hotels poor ventilation, no airflow, um, high humidity, by the way, waterproof membranes, um, only last about seven years. And so if the hotel is more than seven years old, you can bet it's leaking, um, from the bathrooms, um, if not earlier. And so, um, Yeah, these things, if you travel a lot for work, it could be where you're, in fact, it's probably where you're staying, but also even things like your car, you know, did you leave the windows down once accidentally and it rained and now the car is, is moldy in the cushioning or, you know, is it humid where you are and you've always got condensation inside the car? It can be a number of places, but yeah, check home first, then check your workplace and then go from there.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because a lot of people do long commutes to work, especially in non-COVID years because, you know, maybe, maybe it's good that everyone's working from home right now but then maybe it's not because their home's mouldy, who knows. But uh, mm-hmm. the car, if you're in a car that's got some mould in it and you're doing an hour and a quarter or an hour and a half each way as your commute, that's mm-hmm. two to three hours a day in a mouldy environment with the windows up recirculating yeah. the air. So that's a bit scary. Very scary.
1: Yeah, very scary. And that can make you sick too. Um, It could even be the air conditioning in the building or the air conditioning in your car. And you do have to become a bit of a a detective and that's really where a building biologist or mould testing technician can come in because they know what to look for and what tests to run. But if you are experiencing any of those symptoms and they've been hanging around for a while, it's definitely time to start looking at where it might be coming from.
0: Yeah. So talk to me about the humidity thing, because you just mentioned it again then. And Um. I do, as you know, live in a very uh, humid uh, part of the world. I'm in Byron Bay. So in the Mm. summer months, it does get very hot and sticky here. Mm. Uh, And, yeah, we've we've had uh our home at the moment is like extremely well ventilated and we're very very lucky. It's been designed amazingly. But the one we had before that it was quite dark and your clothes in the in the closet would go, you know, green and furry over summer and your leather handbags and your leather shoes would get mold on them. Mm-hmm. And the dehumidifier, you'd run it in one room and get like, you know, 5 or 6 liters in that dehumidifier in like six or seven hours and then you'd move it to the next room and the next room and Mm -hmm. you just felt like you were constantly just knocking the top off but not really fixing the the place itself. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, talk to me about the humidity thing. What can we do?
1: So there's a sweet spot with relative humidity that is ideal for human health but will avoid... Unhealthy microbial growth. It's a bit like anything, right? You can have too much or too little of something. So, the ideal relative humidity in your home should be 45 to 55%. Anything below 40% is too dry for our mucous membranes and our skin, and we need to put a bit more moisture back into the air. Uh, But perhaps the more frequent situation that occurs is humidity above 60%. Once you reach 60%, dust mites start proliferating like crazy and dust mites can cause all kinds of allergy symptoms. And then, of course, mold and yeast and bacteria will also start growing in your home. And certainly 70% above is an absolute danger zone. So I recommend that every household have at least one thermohygrometer hygrometer. And in fact, I've got one in every room because depending on whether the room's on the north side or the south side and whether it got sun that day or air can really uh, be different. But if you've got like a two story home or a three story home, one per story would probably do the trick to get you started. They're really. Cheap to buy, like twenty bucks. Um, you can buy them from hardware stores. I think Bunnings sell them. JB Hi-Fi, J-Car. I bought mine off a, a place online called Instrument Choice. But um, they're all very similar. Um, battery operated with a sensor inside that tells you what temperature is and what the humidity is. And basically, anytime you see it reach fifty-five or more, you need to run the dehumidifier. And that might mean that you. End up investing in one for the very first time. Um, air conditioning, by the way, does have natural dehumidification properties. And so in certain climates, that might work, but that doesn't work in winter. So if you've got a if you live in a damp area, you might have um, a lot of bush around you, um, not a lot of sunlight, um, when it's colder, moisture tends to condense out of the air obviously warming a place up helps to um, reduce the overall humidity, but the moisture has got to go somewhere and you don't want it going into your walls, into your mattress, into your couch, into your cushions, to your pillow, into your clothes and your handbags and your shoes and your carpet. You want to suck that out of the environment. So I, I moved out from Sydney, which is notoriously humid um, for much of the year except when in the middle of winter you get about three months of, of reprieve. Um, but I have moved up recently not too far from you, Jules. Um, yeah, in- yeah. <laughs> Into Kingscliff. And, um, it's been a little alarming that the humidity is so much higher, um, and has elevated for such longer periods. So, you know, I've seen it 70 and 80 here and, yeah. um, and we've got, yeah, one dehumidifier upstairs and one downstairs and it is, it's a juggle
0: Mate, you haven't even sat through a summer up here yet. You wait for January. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm terrified. Proof that's nothing up here. Seriously, oh God, you just me. wait.
1: <laughs> you know what we're going to have to do? So in Sydney, we would. Um, it's it's a bit of a juggling act, right? When it's humid outside, you actually need to shut all the windows, and you need to um, mm-hmm. like run the dehumidifier and stop the, the moisture coming in. But of course, you want fresh air and sunlight. So what we're finding we're doing is we're leaving the um, the bedroom windows open at night when we sleep, but then we close up the bedroom and run the dehumidifier in the wardrobe and in the room during the day. And then we swap it over to the lounge at night. The lounge is open during the day with fresh air. And then we close it at night to dry it down. And then um, my husband and I, we've got our offices downstairs. So I run the dehumidifier um, depending if he's got clients or not, during the day and his and overnight and mine or vice versa. So what we're going to have to do is actually plumb the dehumidifier in now because there's just so much moisture to take out of the air that this whole changing buckets twice a day is not working for me. Um, So you do need to really think carefully about the climate you choose um, if you are building or renovating, there are better building materials you can choose um, that can help regulate the indoor humidity. Unfortunately, we're currently building houses out of paper. Um, you know, the plasterboard that we've got is just perfect junk food for mold to gobble up the minute there's any damp on it. And there are much better materials to be choosing. It also means avoiding things like carpet. Um, maybe considering, um, you know, lounge coverings that are more water resistant rather than fabric. Um, making sure you put waterproof covers on your mattress and pillowcases or pillows, I should say, so that as the damp is, you know, being attracted to dry things, it's not being sucked into your bedding and your soft furnishings. Because once it's in there, you can't get it out.
0: Um, some of those latex pillows if you cut them in mm-hmm. half you would die like seriously mm-hmm. I've, I've I've heard and seen stories of mold getting into some of those those fancy pillows yeah and people tend to hold on to those pillows for a little too long because damn it I've paid a hundred dollars for this pillow I'm gonna get a few years out of it and yeah, yeah they're inside they can be horrific
1: well so with pillows they can be horrific anyway because as you say when you find the one you like you don't want to let go of it right mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> look here's here's the cold hard truth you need to replace your pillow every 2 years even if you don't have a humid issue moisture issue and haven't had a leak if you're asthmatic you should be replacing it every 18 months but if it's absorbed moisture and it's been like you should never go to bed with wet hair by the way um if you've got long hair it's an absolute no-no you'll make your pillow moldy in two days um but if your pillow starts to smell um if there if it doesn't look completely uniform in color um then it's you know we, we we've all seen that dodgy pillow right with all the saliva stains and its various shades of (laughs) Oh, stop cream. It. <laughs> those I'm telling you now need to go on the bin yesterday. Um, but I tell you what, I mean, I've got my favorite, you know, contour expensive pillow and I love it so much that I have just bought a couple and I keep the new ones sealed up in, in plastic, um, in the cupboard with dry, you know, damp reds. And that way in 18 months to two years' time, I chuck it out, I can just replace it with a new one. Um, but, yeah, that they are unfortunately very popular places for microbes to grow and there's nothing you can do about that other than to control the moisture. So that's really what it comes down to um, is managing what happens to the moisture in your home. And I suppose in addition to the monitoring humidity and running the dehumidifier, there's probably a couple of other tips um, that are important to share. So in the event there's wet weather, um, you might dry your clothes in a dryer. And if it's not a condenser dryer, the moisture is coming out into your home. So you want to make sure you're monitoring the humidity and running the dehumidifier. But if you're drying clothes on, say, a clothes rack, you want to put it in the smallest room possible and run the dehumidifier in there. The, dry, the clothes will dry much faster, but it stops the moisture going into the room and into the furniture that's in there. The other thing is when you shower, you really want to be not only running fan for the duration of your shower, but for another good 20 minutes after the shower's off with the door closed, just to suck all that moisture out. Now, to be honest, a lot of those exhaust fans are just pathetic. And so, um, you know, opening a window or putting the dehumidifier in there would be a good idea at the end of the shower. Anyway, all the family showers would be a good idea. And of course, running the exhaust fan when you're cooking, boiling, steaming things, um, just always just, think about where is that water going to go and you just don't want it absorbing into your walls ceilings flooring and furnishings
0: yeah and sometimes the the exhaust fans suck everything up into the roof but Mm. there's no vent on the top of the roof to let it out into the outside world so then the steam's going up just into the roof cavity of your house is that correct
1: Yes. And this is something that just really upsets me. The Australian Building Code has got some major pitfalls in it. And that's one of them. You're simply moving the moisture to another porous place where you can't see a problem developing. It contaminates your entire roof space and can make occupants sick for years before you know there's an issue. So I think it should be mandatory to vent steam to the outside of the home. The same goes with the kitchen. Um, But if you own the property that you're in and and this is a scenario that is true for you, you can get um, a second exhaust fan uh, put on the out exterior roof to work in tandem with the other one. Ideally, a duct to channel the moisture would be ideal. Um, you do need to be careful which ones you choose because they can also be points of moisture intrusion. I sometimes see uh, the whirly whirlybirds um, that are used. If there's wind-driven rain, rain can actually get into the um, ceiling space from outside. So you've got to choose the right thing for your environment, home and weather conditions. But... It should vent straight to the outside, no question, but often it doesn't and that can cause, yeah, problems eventually in any home. And so if that's you, let's say you live in an apartment. Uh, If you're in a city, that's quite likely and you've got an exhaust fan that exhausts into the ceiling space between you and the next floor above and it's really not going anywhere. Now, if it's a new apartment, obviously you you could even tape that up and just use a dehumidifier to dry down the bathroom instead. If you've got a window, of course, open that um, while you're showering. And then once you've finished showering, you can you know close it up and run the dehumidifier. But yeah, that is a big issue. The waterproof membranes are also a big issue. And actually, I'll share one other thing um, because you know, people following your podcast, I'm sure are really passionate about their own health and wanting to do the right thing, which means at some point, if they haven't already, they're probably going to change to using natural household cleaners. Now, you know, you and I both know that, um, cleaning products in a home are an incredibly significant source of endocrine disrupting chemicals. And, and it's likely, you know, you have a conversation with your clients all the time about swapping things over, but also a lot of people get into making their own, which is amazing. But I want to point out any essential oil that has a degreasing action. So essential oils that contain D-limonene, for example, which is citrus oils and eucalyptus will actually break down waterproof membranes and degrade (laughs) Yes, I know. It's quite a bomb. Um, So I'm sharing it because sprays for surfaces like, say, the kitchen bench or general dusting, if they contain lemon or orange or eucalyptus, that's fine. Um, You can also use those to clean the insides of your sinks or your toilet. However, you do not want to be cleaning... Um, waterproofed areas with tiles like your shower cavity or your bathroom floor with those oils because they're actually potentially going to accelerate the degradation of the waterproof membrane. And so you want to choose other ones like rosemary is a good option. For example, Um, there's plenty you can choose from, but just avoid the citrus ones and the eucalyptus ones. Otherwise, you know, kind of swapped one problem and creating
0: possibly creating another one down the line. Wow. Okay. There's so many things. So so many things to think about. <laughs> uh, let's just change tack for a moment because look, and and I I really want to preface this part of the conversation by saying mold illness and sores are they're they're serious things and. I I always like to empower people with things that they can go away and do on their own to get the ball rolling, to to start getting healthier. But if you do have something like this, you really should be placing yourself in the hands of a mold literate or SERS literate naturopath or integrative GP. So I just want to put that out there first. But I do want to ask you, uh, in terms of treatment and, and managing mold illness... What do you do with your clients? Like where do you start? Because like there's so much going on with these people. Uh, What sort of things do you do? you work with diet? Do you work with supplements? Do you work with herbs? Do you use binders? Uh, Talk to me about what, what you would do with a typical client. So if a client
1: has mold illness and they're going to see someone for that, there are two major pieces to the puzzle. The very first piece is getting away from the environment that's poisoned you, the water damaged environment. And this can arguably be the hardest part because if you own your own home and then you've uncovered the fact that it's riddled with toxic mold because say there's been a slow leak in a pipe over a couple of years it's not that easy just to pack up and go and move somewhere else, especially if, if you know, you've got other people as part of your family unit. Um, so there are supplements and things you can do to help, I guess, slow the decline or keep someone's head above water while they're still in that environment, but they will never heal and they will continue to um, deteriorate so long as that they're in their environment. So priority number one is finding a clean environment. And sadly for some people that has come down to living in their car or some people are sleeping in a tent on their balcony outside. Um, But that's the first step. And so you can work with a building biologist to do that, a mold testing technician to find somewhere safe. I also have an online training um, and checklist, which I take people through to teach them what to look for and how to test um, on their own. If they're looking at a rental, it's slightly different than if they're going to buy because you can do more things if you're actually purchasing something. But um, there's a lot you can do to ensure that your next environment is a healthier one. The next step is to really um, work out the best protocol to support someone. Now, I will say, currently, SERS is not recognized in Australia as a thing. And what that means is anyone looking for, say, financial support from the government would need to be diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome or something similar, something that has a code that's already recognised by Medicare in order to get support. And that frequently happens and is really not um, not too difficult because they literally tick all of those boxes.
0: Um, yeah, but if- Medicare doesn't recognise mm-hmm. SIRS.
1: No, no. So what that also means is none of the pathology tests that, you need to order in order to diagnose it are covered and I can tell you because I had every single one done except for one it was two thousand dollars to get the blood tests done and that is prohibitively costly for most people um and it's also, not, it's also not necessary to have them all done. The reason I chose to do that, again, was because I was taking legal action and I needed all the evidence I could get to show that my health had been damaged by this water leak and the mold. You can really get away with four or five um, tests to know enough as a practitioner that you're dealing with SERS. Now, SERS is a bit of an umbrella term, by the way. You can get the same sort of symptoms with others if someone has Lyme. You can also get that with breast implant illness, which is a slightly different flavor and variant of SIRS. And so as a clinician, you're always wanting to make sure you've found the root cause so that when you start treatment, you, can, you know that you're on the right track and um, that person isn't spending money and time and health on you know on maybe not having gotten to the bottom of it. So you want to just make sure um, they really have that. That being said, sometimes it's really obvious and a budget means that money should really go on treatment or finding a new home and not on blood tests. So not every patient will necessarily have those tests, um, especially if, the, if it's very clear that this is what's going on. So as far as protocol goes, there are some ways you can adjust the diet temporarily to relieve some of the body burden. This is not the solution at all. However, what they've found is having a low histamine and low mold diet removes just a little bit of extra, um, a source of provocation, if you like, to the immune system to produce histamine and other inflammatory mediators. Um, removing root vegetables so to removing amylose is is part of that protocol because that particular type of carbohydrate has been shown to raise inflammatory markers that are already highly elevated in a mold patient and so we just don't want to continue to trigger those when we're trying to bring them down so there are sort of um, recommendations that you might be given that being said. I was so sick and my liver was so up and down there were days I couldn't eat anything and there were days where all I could stomach was a coffee and a croissant <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I you know I broke all the rules I ate sweet potato I sometimes I felt like a banana because otherwise I wouldn't eat so you have to be very flexible you have to pick your battles so to speak and choose what you prioritize and for me um, doing the diet part was too hard. Um, as it was, you know, my husband was having to do all the domestic chores, all the cooking, all the cleaning, all the washing and, you know, housekeeping and, you know, while I was just trying to stay alive. So, you know, I wasn't even going to ask him to produce a certain type of meal, although he would have gladly done so. But, you know, I tried it and I'd some, I just couldn't eat it. Um, and so I just had to go with what I could manage. And I just took digestive enzymes and probiotics and and managed it how I could. But then you've got the protocol of how you bring someone back from the brink. Now, the original allopathic pharmaceutical protocol was established many, many years ago and is very effective, but it's not holistic And knowing what we know as naturopaths, even if someone was to follow it, and I certainly support the protocol, there's a lot of other things you can add in to make someone feel better, much faster and get much more rapid results. And so I actually healed on a completely naturopathic protocol. Um, In the allopathic protocol, there are pharmaceutical medications that you take at different stages, Uh, and we'll talk about binders in a second. They're kind of the first thing you go on, and then there's other medications um, to take as you go through each of the steps and correct each of the um, biomarkers that's out. I didn't take any of that. I did it completely naturopathically, and perhaps I was able to do that because, you know, having been a, a health practitioner for almost two decades I had a good foundation from which I became sick from, right? Um, That being said, thank goodness they're available and I would have absolutely used it had it become necessary. Naturopathically speaking, there's an equivalent to almost every single one of those drugs or strategies, including the binders, which is the next step after finding a healthy home. So pharmaceutically speaking, the binder that is or the type of, class of binder that's recommended is a type of drug that binds cholesterol in the gut. In fact, it's an old fashioned cholesterol medication that works by absorbing the cholesterol that comes through your bile. Because of course, through the bile is where a lot of our toxins are eliminated, including mycotoxins. And so it effectively acts like a sponge to absorb those toxins, preventing them returning back into into your body. Now, whilst they are the strongest and most efficient, we also have a number of different natural binders that we can use in combination to do the same thing, which is exactly what I did.
0: Yeah. I went to a seminar last year. I think it was last year. 2020 has really just scrambled my timeline. <laughs> I went to a seminar back back in the days when you could fly somewhere and go to a seminar uh, and it was all about chronic fatigue and they, they touched a lot on SIRS and it was with someone called Dr. Andrew Heyman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was really big on reducing the neuroinflammation first without before you actually go in with some of those binders because mm. he he's really big on having sort of like a process where you get that inflammation down as much as you can first. Otherwise, you said the binders can aggravate. Is that true for you? What's your experience?
1: Yes, they absolutely can Um, because what happens is, you know, our body in its wisdom tries to store toxins and locks them away and certainly for mycotoxins being fat-soluble are locked away in adipose tissue, which is why so many along with the leptin resistance, so many SERS patients put on weight. Now, some SERS patients will have a dramatic weight loss and just not quite scary weight loss and not be able to put any weight on. But for most of us, it's it's the opposite. And as you start to draw toxins out of the body, I know binders aren't an active detoxification product, but as you start to pull the garbage out, the body then starts to release more from storage. And if you don't have support in place, you can absolutely feel worse. Now, a small degree of intensification is not necessarily cause for alarm, but Dr. Andrew Heyman is really um, part of a movement of of clinicians who have gone beyond the initial 12-step protocol that was first- elucidated for this condition. And um, I think he's an absolutely incredible physician. I really admire him. He's so clever and I fully support his his approach. And he's really part of a second wave of integrative doctors who are developing a more holistic and I think biologically intelligent approach. And with the nervous system inflammation that occurs with these neurologically damaging toxins as well as the inflammatory compounds our own immune system makes, you can actually end up with irreversible damage. Um, that depends on the volume of the inflammation and the duration that it 's been occurring but I truly believe healing shouldn't hurt and so I think his approach where he's looking to reduce inflammation before he starts to move the toxins out is a clever one. Now, you could argue the inflammation won't go down until the toxin level comes down, but it's a real chicken and egg scenario. Yes,
0: that's the problem I've had in in clinic. It's like, well, how long do we wait before we say, oh, let's just give you some binders?
1: Yes, look, you've really got to take that on a case by case basis, and you've really got to feel into the presentation of the patient. So, if someone's symptoms are becoming unbearable, like if my tremors had gotten a lot worse, if my nerves were even more on fire than they were originally, that would have been a signal to me to back off and maybe try and approach it from a different step. Um, Back then, if if we'd had PEA or um, phenylethanolamide, I would have included that. High-dose fish oil is also really powerful. Um, Anything that helps with reducing histamine or settling down the cells that reduce histamine is really helpful. Um, And, of course, this is where the diet can be really supportive. That can be a really easy way for people to reduce inflammatory-provoking foods. And once someone feels a little bit better, um, then you can go in with the binders. I think with the binders though, the key is, is a couple of things to be mindful of. Going in with really little doses and building up slowly. Um, if you're taking binders, you want to make be making sure you have a bowel motion every day, at least once a day, because otherwise it can block you up and make you feel worse. Um, and certainly, you know, you want to be drinking enough fluid, having enough fiber, but The issue I'm finding now that I'm well enough to look at other mold patients is that there seems to be a pattern of difficulty with phase two and phase three detoxification in the body. And so when you start to suck the toxins out, but the rest kind of get bottlenecked, at the front of the tube, you get all of the oxidative stress, um, and then, you know, uh, the inflammation. And so supporting phase two and particularly phase three with glutathione, I know I'm getting really technical now, but, um, as a clinician, there's just a little bit more to it to help binders have the effect that you're looking for.
0: Yeah, Because if those binders, uh, sucking everything out and you know and leaving the body via the gut we need mm. to make sure that the gut is working and the transit time mm. is good and that it's not yes. just sitting in there for too long exactly mm. okay uh the other uh I want to talk to you all day, but this might have to be the last point. (laughs) Sadly, (laughs) We could do like a six part series on this and still not get to everything. But I think, and and again, I I really want to reiterate that that's why it's really important to work with a practitioner on this stuff, because it's a huge, huge, huge rabbit hole, this one. Like some of us are spending years on study and there's still new things to learn all the time. Mm. Uh, but I know that the question I'm going to get asked a lot when when people tune into this episode is if they're looking for a new home whether they're buying or whether they're renting what are some simple things I mean yes you can spend five six seven hundred dollars and get a building biologist through and do all of that Uh, Mm. but if that's if that's not in the budget what are some simple things we can do to see if the house is safe before we commit to living in it
1: so Probably, and this is going to sound like I'm just tooting my own horn for the sake of it, but
0: just call um, Amy, everyone. Just (laughs) call me.
1: (laughs) so, So, I think I mentioned it earlier, but I do have a specific training that I offer that also gives you a checklist to tick off everything that you can possibly see and do in a property to reduce the risk of accepting and entering into a home that's water damaged. Now, there are extra things you can do on a property um, if you're looking to buy it that you can't do in a rental. So obviously if someone's hoping for hundreds of thousands of dollars of your money, um, they fully expect you to do a building and pest inspection and having a building biologist um, do an assessment or if you were to do like a pseudo assessment yourself is not something that they're going to decline or even worry about. But when it comes to rentals, um, particularly at the moment, things are so crazy. You've sometimes got 20, 30, 40 other people going through.
0: Oh my God. In Byron Bay, there was one the other week, 80 applicants. 80. Oh, it's it's honestly terrifying. It's out
1: of control. And if you want to be if you want to stand out as the best candidate to get that property you do not want to be doing anything that's going to draw the attention of the agent and annoy them um, and so you want to be really discreet about it you've also got 15 minutes in an open home max sometimes only 10 to get around it and look at all of the things so I will give you some key points in just a second but if you know you're impacted by mold, you're recovering from it, or just for health reasons, you want to make sure you don't end up living in a water damaged home with a bad microbiome. Um, That is the best way um, to be able to do it yourself and not miss anything. But basically there's a few key things that I can tell you, you know, in our closing minutes. So first of all, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, there should be no smell. So, if you walk in and there's any smell of any sort, um, you, there's a problem. Now, it could smell like dirty socks. It could smell a bit yeasty and bready. It could smell like cat urine, vomit, fermenting mushrooms, alcohol. There's even um, a VOC mold producer that smells like marijuana. Um, <laughs> I tell you what, if, if any agent has, is burning a scented candle, or has got some kind of synthetic fragrance, that is a massive alarm bell. You can just turn right around because they're trying to cover something up.
0: Um, <laughs> or beware the old house with the fresh coat of paint is all oh, I'm saying. Yes. Oh, my Lord. I had one of them in Peran in Melbourne. We nicknamed mm-hmm. it the House of the Rising Damp. We, oh. only, we only stayed six months, but oh, my Lord. We were like, oh, look, this amazing freshly painted house. Wow, Mm-mm. that's so amazing to have that's a freshly love. painted house. Uh uh-uh. mm-hmm
1: suspicious. It's so suspicious. Um, and even new carpet, like a new carpet's good in the sense that if there was a problem and they fixed it, you've got a fresh slate from which to maintain it. But it, I always get a little Forest Whitaker eye when I see, you know, like fresh paint, fresh blinds. I'm like, uh-huh. That was a condensation riddled, you know, moldy place. No thanks. Um, to be honest, I have a personal rule of no carpet. Um, because carpet, um, within six to 12 months, if the place hasn't been managed for moisture is going to be a problem. Um, so, but that's pretty difficult. Um, you know, especially in the cooler states or cooler climates, you're going to get carpet. Um, but some key things will obviously use your nose get your head into the wardrobes, um, get down on the floor, uh, make sure you're looking inside the bathroom and kitchen cupboards. Um, Again, with the building code, with the use of braided water hoses in recent years, they tend to develop pinprick leaks within five years and can slowly cause water damage in cabinetry. So, a torch with you so in those dark spaces you can look into the you know the bottom of the wardrobe and into the kitchen cupboard and bathroom cupboard and, and you don't
0: even need a torch because that's mm-hmm. going to like arouse suspicion just iphone iphone, iPhone torch. You
1: know, the yeah. light on your phone yeah, yeah totally yep. subtle. Best. Yeah. Um, um, always look at the ceilings um, for ripples, bubbles, um, odd colours. Obviously, ceilings when they first go in are smooth and white. So if there's any darker patches, water stains, um, fresh paint stains, ripples, bubbles, um, buckling, warping, um, that's a red flag. Um, same with carpet colour. If it's lighter carpet, you can kind of see, tend to see what's going on. Go and have a look where the bathroom is and the walls that are um, on the outside of the shower cavity. So the bathroom probably goes up against one of the bedrooms or maybe into the hallway. Go and look at the skirting boards, the flooring, and the bottom of the wall outside the shower um, and have a look, again, for any of those telltale textures or colour changes would be really key. Um, Also have a look at... um, where the building is situated. I mean, obviously every building is going to have a north, south, east and west face, but in the Southern Hemisphere, north, northeast facing is where you want to be. If it's a cooler climate, northwest is good for the warm winter, um, winter sun. Um, you want obviously plenty of sunlight and fresh air. So if it doesn't get natural sunlight, I wouldn't live in there. Um, if you're also sort of locked in a bushy, damp area where you've got a lot of leaf litter and and damp nearby, that's probably not going to be very good. Or you're going to be running the dehumidifier all the time. Um, you certainly don't want to be on the ground floor where water is pooling. If there's not good drainage around the property, and certainly in Sydney where you've got rising damp everywhere, you want to be elevated. Um, you certainly don't want to be built right on the bedrock there. So There are lots of things um, that you can look at for the actual property. Check for missing tiles. Are the gutters clear? Um, Are the eaves rotting or are they okay? Um, Like is that building well maintained or not? That will tell you a lot about if a leak does develop, whether or not the strata are going to be on top of it or not. Um, But, yeah, definitely your eyes and your nose will often find uh, problems if you know what to look for and smell for. But if you really want to be serious about it, there's two other things you can do. Take along a moisture meter and a Swiffer cloth. Now, a moisture meter can be picked up very cheaply from somewhere like Bunnings. Um, $50, $60, I suppose that's not too cheap, but it's also not prohibitive. And if you're worried about damp, assuming the place isn't brand new or has the showers have been recently used, get go with a friend or a partner, they can distract the agent in another room and you can apply the moisture meter to the plasterboard and the skirting board outside the bathroom. And you can see if it's wet compared to other walls in the home. You can also do that up high to see if there's a ceiling leak. Um, And if you're really serious about the place and it looks really good, A Swiffer cloth is something you can do an ERMI test with and you can take dust samples very subtly and send it away and that will tell you whether or not the place is water damaged or not or if there's been water damage there before. And so there is a lot you can do even as a prospective renter to avoid taking a lease on something that's going to make you sick. Now it's not pr- foolproof. Uh, of course, nothing is. And you know, without taking air samples from the wall cavities, you can't ever know for sure. But if none of those other red flags are popping up, you should be able to rest easy in the knowledge that it's probably an okay place to be. Yeah.
0: And if you are buying a house, you can put conditions in, you can put your offer in and everything and then you can say it's, you know, subject to the following conditions and one of the conditions can be like a, a building test.
1: Well, here's my advice about that. I don't know if it varies from state to state, but my understanding is if you put subject to building in pest or by the same token subject to a building biology report, legally, you have to give the seller the opportunity to fix it up and and your contract is still binding. Now, when it comes to remediation, you want the remediation to be done according to double ICRC guidelines. You want a medical grade remediation, but I can tell you an owner trying to sell the house isn't going to spend tens of thousands of dollars for you to move in. So, they're going to do a bodgy remediation job and you're going to be forced to buy it. So, what I tell people to do is always leave it subject to finance, even and especially if you've got finance in place, so that if the report comes back that it's a problem, you can decide whether or not it's a problem you're willing to take on and pay for yourself or you want to use the finance as a reason to get out of the contract. Um, So that would be my recommendation. Um, But obviously in your own mind, your decision to purchase, of course, will be based on elements, including the building biology report. And of course, a building biologist can do stuff you can't do as a renter. You know, they can get into the crawl space, they can get into the subfloor, they can take air samples from all of those nooks and crannies you can't see with your eyes. And you can do a vacuum ermy as well, which is what you want to do if there's carpet um, and get a really good read on the place before you hand over your money.
0: Awesome. All right. I know there's lots to consider and I know there's a lot of information uh, at your website and also on your socials. So can you please let people know where they can find out more and where they can connect with you?
1: Yes, absolutely. So probably the best place to find me is if you're on Instagram at that naturopath. Um, I do have a Facebook page too. If you search my name, Amy Skilton, and that's Amy, spelled A-M-I-E. Or if it's easier, you can just come and send me a message at my website at
0: com. Amazing. Amy, I'm so sorry that this happened to you, but I'm so glad that you've turned this into a positive and you've, you've found a way to heal not just yourself but so many hundreds and thousands of other people. So thank you so much for everything you do in the world, my love. You're amazing. Thank you so much, Jules. Appreciate the chat. I hope you enjoyed listening to Straight Talking Natural Health. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, head over to my website at julesgalloway.com. There's a free quiz on there to see if you're at risk of burnout. I also have an amazing ebook called Heal Your Adrenals, which is a must for any woman with adrenal dysfunction, aka adrenal fatigue. When I'm not podcasting, I'm seeing clients all over the world via Zoom. I love working with fatigue, thyroid issues, autoimmunity, viral disorder, mold illness and complex cases, to name just a few so why not book in and let's work together. All of this and more is available right now over at julesgalloway.com. That's all from me for the time being. I look forward to diving in with you again in the next episode. Bye for now.